We're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. Last week, um, Pastor Tim Beavis uh, preached on Hosea, and here I am with Joel, the next book. Um, a short book, three chapters, um, and I've, uh, I've done a little bit of study on Joel before, but preparing for this sermon has really uh, grown my appreciation for this wonderful book, despite its uh, really short size in comparison to many of the prophetic works. But as I begin, please uh, let me pray. Dear Lord, you called us here to come and worship, to, to hear your word, to respond to you. Lord, we do respond. It's a confession that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but Lord, with the assurance from you that you do save your people. We are thankful. Lord, as we open the, the book of Joel this morning and continue into the Minor Prophets, this book of the Twelve, may the meditations of our hearts and the words coming out of my mouth be pleasing to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I, as you may uh be reminded of almost every second on your cell phones or on the TV or the computer, every manner of media, whether social media or mainstream or whatever it is, you know that these are weird times. There's a whole lot going on. I've seen funny memes and pictures on the internet say, well, what's next month? You know, zombies? Aliens after that, right? I mean, we've had murder hornets. We've had the coronavirus. We've had uh, hurricanes, um, deaths of friends and family members, and the unfortunate reality of racism and, and violence in the world for all manner of reasons. It's really hard to go through, to witness such evil in the world, such sin. People that are willfully disobedient to our Lord. We cry out for justice, and we're disappointed when our leaders here on earth can only do so much, if anything at all. And then there's the sin in our own lives, too. You know, I, I don't know to what degree the church is responsible for, I don't know if we have been lazy at times, or if we've been disobedient in one way or another in that I don't know to what degree that affects our current state of this world, but I know that we have all sinned in one way or another, individually and as a body at times. And sin has consequences. It's hard. I, I don't want to outright say, I, you know, I'm not the Lord. I don't want to say that, oh, that hurricane, Cristobal, I think it was called. That was caused because of people's sin. I don't know. I don't want to name one particular sin or one particular people group as the, the perpetrators of such calamity. I don't know. I could just be something that happens, unfortunately. But I do know that sin does have consequences and that sin will be judged by the Lord, whether the moment it happens or on that day when Jesus comes again. 
And this is what the book of Joel, this is what Joel is prophesying about, is this judgment, this day of the Lord. And if you go ahead and open up to Joel chapter 1, either on your phones or on your, uh, in your hard copy Bibles, Joel chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Yahweh himself is speaking this. This is an important message to him. He says, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their, tell their children and their children to another generation. Seems a little bit similar to today, like, you know... When I grew up, I'll be telling my grand, you know, I survived the plague of the coronavirus back in 2020. We'll be telling these things to generations to come. This is, his, this is a historic year for a number of reasons. And I don't know the specific situation here in Judah that Joel is speaking to, but this is a remarkable event, an event that has not happened before and is something to be told generation to generation. And the Lord cares about it as such. He's proclaiming it. Listen to this. This is important for you to hear, my people. And what is it that's happened? What is it that they're looking around at and that they will tell to their children? Verse 4. You see a series of different kinds of locusts. The cutting, the swarming, the hopping, the destroying. And they've eaten and eaten and eaten and eaten. don't know if this is a literal plague of locusts or if it's symbolic of an army from uh, the surrounding nations, whether the Assyrians or Babylonians. As we'll see later, there's some language of, of soldiers and armies, so don't know if it's literally bugs flying in, different ones at different times, or different stages of locusts, or if it's a symbol for a human army. In either case, devastation has occurred. They have ravaged the land. And I think the Israelites, those living in Judah, would be familiar with this idea of a plague of locusts. Where have we heard such a plague before? Anyone? Egypt. Yeah, in Egypt. They, uh, they, Egyptians know about a plague of locusts. I wanna, you don't have to turn there. But that plague of locusts is from Exodus chapter 10. And here, here's why uh, the Lord sent um, these locusts to the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. A plague of locusts that will eat and eat and eat, and eat, as such as the Egyptians had never seen before, and something that they'll tell to their children. 
And here in Joel, the, he's telling these people this imagery is one that, they've, that they know of. Well, this time it's happening to them. And these locusts, they, they, there's language in these following verses, verses 5 through, uh, 5 through 13, that show that the fig tree is splintered, the, wine is, the, the vine is wasted, all these goods are gone. And I think it's because they've, I don't know what specific sin that they've committed, but it's, I think it's akin to the Egyptian sin. They have prevented the service of the Lord. They have blocked off the people in one way or another from being consecrated unto the Lord, set apart for his service. They're no longer a holy people. And he says in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. The locust, maybe literally, this army from the north, who knows, but devastation has occurred, and people are sleeping during this. They don't realize the things going on around them. They don't see the sin in their land and the devastation it has caused. Have we, church? Do we see the sins that have infiltrated the pulpits? Do we see the sins that we tend to ignore and sleep through? We run to our alcohol or drugs, your, you know, your addiction of choice to numb the pain so you don't have to observe or feel the heaviness of these sinful decisions. The Lord says, wake up. See the devastation around you. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. A love taken away so quickly. The grain offering in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The wine offering and the, or the grain offering and the drink offering were meant to be uh, offerings for consecration, for offerings for goodwill to show that the people had a relationship with Yahweh. And here they aren't able to make those sacrifices. One, on the one hand, the, the physical resources seem to be gone. There is no grapes for the drink offering. There are no grapes for the drink offering. There is no wheat for the grain offering. It is gone. But also, I think the, the spiritual resources, so to speak, are gone. They have no goodwill with Yahweh. Yahweh is not happy with their state of sin. This language uh, of the wine drying up, the trees drying up. You see at the end of verse 10, the wine dries up. In the beginning of verse 11, it says, be ashamed. Now, in English, they don't sound the same at all. Dries up, be ashamed, that doesn't rhyme. Go back to, uh, uh, what? oh, what's that? Um, uh, schoolhouse Rock, is that what it is? I need to go back there if I think that rhymes. But I think those words are connected because in the, in the Hebrew, they sound the same. They sound, uh, they, they, if I remember correctly, uh, I think they rhyme. 
the trees dry up and you should be ashamed. The shame that you feel from this devastation around you, the devastation that's been uh, a judgment because of your sin should cause you to feel shame. Shame like dried up trees is an appropriate response to one's sin effect. Sin affects yourself and the world around you. Even creation itself cries out. Verse 14, we're going to skip ahead. It says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Stop there for a moment. We're beginning this lament. People are finally waking up. They're seeing the devastation, the effects of sin that the locusts have eaten and eaten and eaten and what they have had has been taken away. They do not have a relationship with Yahweh as he wants with them. And Joel is urging them, the Lord is urging them, consecrate a fast, set aside yourselves for me. Come to my house and be with me again. There's a warning in verse 15. Alas, you better do this because alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. We're going to see this language of the day of the Lord pop up again and again and again in the minor prophets. It comes uh, throughout these books, this day of the Lord, an image of a very big day. Some people, uh, you know, depending on the context, attribute it to the Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming, depends on the context. But at least here, it's, it's at the very least referring to a judgment day. Consecrate a fast. Be set apart because the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. Why are we lamenting? Because the day of Yahweh is coming. We see judgment now. Creation is groaning alongside of us. We are ashamed. Because as the day of the Lord comes, and if we don't have, if we are not right with God, we will be crushed and destroyed. Joel cries out in verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Sin in our world, sin in our own lives should cause us to cry out, to pant as if for water in a dry land. How much lament have we felt this year for the sin in this world, for the death of people, for injustice? Have we lamented over that? Whether, whether we are the direct cause or not, are we lamenting over the sin of the world? Do we see the day of the Lord as some distant day that I don't have to worry about yet? As long as I'm right, I'm good. 
this day of the Lord is significant. These locusts, this present suffering from sin, and I want to clarify, not all suffering is because of sin, but suffering from sin presently is just a sign of what's to come. These locusts are just forerunners for this day of the Lord in chapter 2. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. This imagery of locusts, think that what has come, what will never be again this judgment day, it is a day of alarm. Blow the trumpet. Be aware that this is happening. Zion is the city of God, and he's telling them, be concerned that this is coming. Fire devours before them and behind them, verse 3, like a, uh, behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. This is uncreation language. The good creation that God has made is being undone through judgment. He is wiping it out through fire. This army is, is horrible. The, this appearance of them is frightening, leaving nothing but devastation in their wake. Down in verse 11, it says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? These locusts, these Assyrians, Babylonians, whatever you think these locusts are, the Lord's behind them. The Lord, that's the, that's the army of the Lord right there, executing this judgment. The Lord is judging his people. What do we make of that? Yahweh is telling his people, be aware of what I'm doing here. I'm bringing judgment upon you. I'm bringing armies. The Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Assyrians into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken by the Babylonians. The Lord was behind that. The Lord punished his people for sin. The shame, the appropriate shame that we feel from our own sins and all the effects that that shame and sin bring is from the Lord. This judgment is righteous. And this day the Lord that is coming is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? No one can stand against Yahweh. There is no one who can claim righteousness in his presence apart from him. So I would, I would warn those 
and, and myself too, that if you think you are secure in your sin, be warned, this day is coming. Repent, call out to the Lord. Lament over your sin. Be alerted, wake up. See the devastation, the, the death that sin brings. But verse 12 and following says that we need not despair. For one reason, and one reason only, is that Yahweh is compassionate. It says in verse 12, Yet even now, even now in your sin, even now in this devastation that you've caused by turning your back on me, even now that I want to judge you and wipe you out with my armies, return to me with all your heart fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Even amidst our sin, and judgment, it's not too late to repent. The Lord is gracious, is He not? By this point, the, the people of Judah have heard these words so many times. I, I believe the first time it was written is in Exodus, and it was repeated several times throughout Torah and the history of Israel. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It's, a, it's essentially a creed. We know this to be true, that God is patient. That this judgment he's bringing upon his people, he will relent from. But he wants torn hearts, not false sacrifices. Not the blood of bulls and goats that don't satisfy, but a contrite heart confesses their need for a Savior. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. These offerings that were stopped, the Lord says, Turn to me. Please have a relationship with me again, my people. I want you. Turn away from your sin. Wake up. Hear this word from the Lord through Joel. Remind your children of this from generation to generation that I am faithful and I am gracious that if you turn from your sin and repent, I will forgive you. This repentance is a serious matter. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion again. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and let and the bride her chamber. Everyone's getting involved in this. 
from the least to the greatest, from those who are busy and those who are not, from those who have a happy time going on, those who are having a sad time going on, everyone get in on this repentance. You notice the trumpet again. We heard the trumpet in chapter 2, verse 1, as an alarm that judgment is coming. And here in the middle of repentance and talk of, of grace and compassion, there's the trumpet again. The same seriousness with which we take judgment must be carried into repentance. The same seriousness with which we take judgment must be carried into repentance. A life not just saying, Lord, I'm sorry, and moving on. Life that continually turns to the Lord. I know I have failed in that matter to not carry this seriousness, this alertness to be, to be sober and vigilant against sin. I forget his name, but there was a, a, a reformer that said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you're going to sum up Joel, that's probably it. Hear the trumpet call. The Lord is saying, hey, wake up. Live like my holy people. Consecrate yourselves. Be set apart so that you may make these fragrant offerings pleasing to the Lord. A fragrant offering of a repentant heart. These priests and ministers in verse 17, they weep. They cry out and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? There may be times in, the, in this year that being faithful to the way the Lord has called us doesn't look like prosperity often feel abandoned. Maybe you've lost a job or two or three. Maybe that government check wasn't enough to cover even one month or two months. You may feel abandoned and you may cry out to the Lord, where are you? You said if I turned to you that you'd be there for me. Verses 18 and following shows Yahweh's zeal for his people. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The unexpected hope from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, they did not expect any sort of grace, didn't expect any saving. All they expected was judgment. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it was hoped for grace. Hey, you know, if we repent, who knows? He might let us have a relationship with him again. And in verse 17, they're praying for it. They're weeping for grace. And here it is in verse 18. He's jealous of his lamb. He's pity on his people. And he gives them what they need. 
Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul of smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Great, not good. Great thing, great, great evil things. It says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great righteous things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. The land is no longer dried up. The people no longer need to be ashamed. He gives food and clears their name among the nations, removes the armies of their enemies, these locusts, Assyrians, Babylonians, whatever, they're gone. These instruments of judgment, he's removing them from his people. He heals creation. He cares about the plants and animals too. He restores joy, removing shame. And why? What is it that removes this shame? Down in verse 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The shame that we should feel because of our sin, the shame that you feel from the secrets that you hide from one another. The, the gossip, the hatred, the bitterness, the indignant disobedience against Yahweh. The shame that you should feel from those things is, well, you, you should feel some shame from that, but in turning to the Lord, He has compassion on you and you need not feel shame any longer. He will give you what you need give you joy and, and peace. He will make you righteous. And we see that now on this side of the cross that that righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. And our joy comes from our relationship with Him. That He dwells with us. Is He in the, in the midst of, of this body, the church, I'm, I'm sad that we didn't get to take communion today. I've been looking forward to it for so long. And thankfully, we get to have it uh, next time. But um, one reason I love it, because it reminds us that Christ dwells with us. That we take him in. That we remember what he has done. And we proclaim his death until he comes again. And there is no shame in communion. Verses 28 through 32 talks about Yahweh's spirit being a greater and future promise. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward, after these blessings, after this removal of present uh, destruction from sin, Removal of shame, 
This will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. In the Old Testament, when someone received the spirit of Yahweh, it was uh, either to proclaim a message, it was to uh, perform uh, the duties with which the Lord entrusted them to do. The spirit was an equipping. The Lord was enabling someone to do the task he set before them. And I, and I think this is, this is it here. He's promising his people in Judah that I will give you my spirit so that you may live as I've called you to live, as a royal priesthood, as a consecrated people set apart for me. And I think for, for us, we, we see on, on this side of the Pentecost, we see the, the grand fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, we are equipped to live as priests in this world, proclaiming the message of the gospel, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that you need not suffer judgment at the day of the Lord, that you may have life that there is no shame in Christ for those that repent. He makes that clear in the following verses, 30 through 32. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. This apocalyptic injury, the imagery, this uh, day of the Lord language. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Zion is no longer under attack. Zion is now a place of refuge. Because the people of Zion are those who called on the Lord and returned to him. These are the ones that the Lord has called himself. These are my people. And I am their God, and I dwell with them. I have poured out my spirit upon them, and they will not be judged. The nations, though, chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. It's made clear in the next line, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. He goes on against a, with an attack against Tyre and Sidon. These nations, in their greed and in their sin, have attacked God's people. They have yelled in the face of Yahweh, "You owe us. Give us what you want. Give us what we want." He says, well, "Are you paying me back for something?" Hey, if you're trying to get back at me, 
hey, I'll tell you what, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. You've taken what's mine, my silver and gold, my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's angry because these nations have defied him. And his judgment is coming this day of the Lord. What's ironic here is as the people of Israel is consecrated for holiness, consecrated for fasting, for praying, for serving the Lord, these nations who are against Yahweh are consecrated for war. They are set apart for judgment. They are set apart for death. Let them, let them come. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Lord's saying, bring it on. You want to defy me? Let's go. You will lose. The Lord says that he will sit and judge. Again, some ironic language in verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Ironic, because in chapter 1, we heard of this valley and trees that are dying and dried up. There is no multitude of wheat. There is no multitude of wine. We hear this, this overflowing. In their sin, they've made for themselves an abundance of riches. And Yahweh says, that's all going to go away when I come to judge you for your wickedness. I think we can see the potential for profit here in our world if we just choose to uh, sin. Backstab someone here. Step on someone over here. Etc., etc. You, you mean, I'm, I'm sure we've all been tempted in one way or another to uh, deny the Lord or to harm an image bearer to get what we want, to fill our own wine vats and our own barns full of grain. We've sold out others. There's a time in history where we literally sold people for our own gain. These are the sorts of sins that well, all sin that will be visited upon. But the day of the Lord is, is meant to judge. That the life, the false life that sin brings will be exposed and put to death finally. Verse 16, a new noise comes from Zion, not a trumpet, but a roar. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The city of Zion is no longer alarmed, but victorious against sin. 
why judgment? Why is the Lord so harsh, it seems? Why so severe? Why not Lord just send an angel down and says, hey, person, stop sinning. The reason it seems so harsh maybe because we don't understand the weight of the Lord and His, His holiness and the importance that he, he places on His people being holy like Him. Think of going through Leviticus recently. All the laws about holiness. That's a lot to go through, and it can seem strict, but the Lord takes holiness seriously. So this day the Lord is coming so that he can show his holiness. He can make his people holy. He can separate the wheat from the chaff. He can separate those who are his people and those who are not his people, those that have repented and those that have not. Verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord reigns. He is king. He's a holy king. He does not tolerate sin in his kingdom. It's to be clean, pure, consecrated to him. And him alone. And thankfully we've come to realize that though we are not Jews, we can be a part of his people. No longer strangers, but family members. We are called to take sin seriously. To examine our lives. That's, you know, before we take communion, we examine our hearts, right? We do that for a reason. Because to to be in unity with the Lord, to dwell in Zion with Him, to dwell in His presence, to be united with Christ, to say you forego sin. You repent and say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner and I need you. I don't want to be a stranger. And so don't feel safe in your sin. Because judgment is coming. But on the other hand, don't despair that you're too far gone. The Lord is gracious. He wants to make you a friend, a child. And praise be to God that we can hear his call to return, to repent from our sin and turn to Christ. Let me pray. But we thank you that you take sin seriously. It may be challenging in the moment to witness the evil in the world, 
to see the effects of our own sin, Lord, and it is, sh- it is shameful how we have sinned. Please help us not to sin anymore. We rend our hearts before you. We know you're gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you're faithful to your people, that you will make us holy. Lord, please make us holy. We may dwell with you in your land. We will have unity with Christ. Lord, we pray for this, for this world. Lord, that those who are lost may be found, that they'll hear your call to return. To maybe even just turn in the first place, to, to walk away from sin, to see that you are king. Thank you for your spirit that we are equipped to proclaim the gospel in this world, that we are equipped to fight sin. You equip us to do whatever you call us to do. Will you reign? You are holy. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.